me ask you this evening, I'm going to be looking at Psalm 76, but if you want to turn to 1 Kings, or excuse me, 2 Kings, chapter 19, I want to read a portion from this chapter, which I believe is in some ways the context of the psalm, I'll comment a little on that as we go, but that reading is the familiar portion, it's a lengthy part of 2 Kings, and Portions of it are referenced and the account spoken of in Isaiah's prophecy. It's the victory over Sennacherib and the invasion there coming against Jerusalem. So I want to read from 2 Kings 19 and we'll break in and start in verse 29 and read down to the end of the chapter before we turn to our psalm. 2 Kings 19 verse 29. And this shall be a sign unto thee. Ye shall eat this year such things as grow of themselves, and in the second year that which springeth of the same. And in the third year sow ye and reap, and plant vineyards, and eat the fruits thereof. And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote of the camp of the Assyrians an hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib king of Assyria departed and went and returned and dwelt in Nineveh. It came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach his god, that Ramelech and Sherezer, his sons, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Esar Hadan, his son, reigned in his stead. Now over to Psalm 76. Psalm 76 to the chief musician on Neganoth, a psalm or song of Asaph. In Judah is God known, his name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There break he the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword and the battle. Selah. Thou art more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted are spoiled. They have slept their sleep, and none of the men of might have found their hands. At thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse are cast into a deep sleep. Thou, even thou, art to be feared. And who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry? Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was stilled when God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth. Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Vow and pay unto the Lord your God that all that be round about and bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. 
He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. Well, amen. We trust the Lord again to bless the public reading of his inspired word. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, as we again pause the Sabbath evening and approach the throne of grace, we're mindful again that it's not a vain thing to seek you in prayer. It's not a vain thing to gather with your people. And we pray that you might grant us the help that we need this night. Lord, we know that there are distractions, there are various burdens. Lord, there are various encouragements and blessings. Lord, we have the, the distraction of so many of our numbers scattered from us tonight and today for different reasons. But Lord, we come and pray that as we gather here, there'll be a word in season for our hearts, for the need of our own souls. And so we pray that you will be pleased to prosper us in these moments now. In Jesus' name. We've been looking these Lord's Day evenings at this little series of the Psalms of Asaph that are all strung together, save the one, the first one, that we've considered already. The Psalms are Psalms that often have a little bit of the melancholy. We've said that, I think it was Spurgeon, maybe another, that said Asaph often played in the minor key. Well, in some ways, if you've ever heard a hymn played that was in the minor, sometimes the musicians change it to the major for the final chord. I don't understand such things, but um, I believe it to be so. Well, this is one of those psalms that there's some sober stuff that's underneath it and that produces it in a way. But yeah, this is a psalm that is, that is filled with victory. This is a psalm that's in the major, as it were, all the way through. There are negatives, there are assaults, there are enemies that in many ways are the foundation of the psalm. But all they are, as we see here, are threats. All they are are insults that are overturned. The psalm itself, and we'll see and say more in a moment, is most probably looking back to that historic event that we read of in 2 Kings, the overthrow of the Assyrian army that night when they were encamped round about Jerusalem. But the psalm also takes us beyond that or whatever historic event it's reflecting upon, and it brings us ultimately to the final day, the final overthrow of God's enemies and the enemies of His people. And so as we look at the psalm this evening, this is a psalm that has a very simple structure. From verses 1 to 6, it's recounting an oppression or a danger, an event that in some ways was local and it's already accomplished. I mean, if you see the, even the names that are put forth in the opening verse, the synonyms for Jerusalem and God's people gathered there are multiplied. And so there's a security, there's a protection, there's a deliverance for Jerusalem that's in view. But then when you look from verse 7 to the end of the psalm, it's, it's looking forward. There's a deliverance that isn't local and already accomplished. There's a deliverance that's universal and that's future. 
And I believe that obviously that brings us right up to the last day. But from verses 1 to 6 in this historic deliverance that, as we've said, is, is local and it's already accomplished, the psalmist, and one of the reasons that commentators are pretty much united that the psalm must reflect back on Sennacherib's invasion, is that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Scriptures that predates Christ by a couple centuries, um, in the title to the psalm, it's affixed that that was the historic occasion that brought forth the psalm or that the psalm referenced. And when you look at the pictures of the psalm, particularly verses 5 and 6, how to describe what occurred in that that we read of back in 2 Kings, well, these words fit that event probably better than any other event in Israel's history. So it's not guaranteed, it's not given to us in the text of the psalm, but that deliverance seems to fit the description better than any other. But even if that's not the case, what we see is a deliverance, a danger that was previously experienced by God's people, and yet they were powerfully delivered from it. If you look as it opens, we said there are synonyms and different names that are multiplied. And Judah is God known. His name is great in Israel. All the tribes, the two pieces of the land really, the northern tribes which were already gone, yet they're referenced and known here. In Salem also is His tabernacle, that just short for Jerusalem, and His dwelling place in Zion. That citadel that David himself captured that had been so hard and impossible to have been captured prior to David's day. It's here that that God is known. And for God to be known and His name to be great, here there's a recognition of His glory. There's an experience of His name. His name is esteemed. We see here that this God that delivers and protects Israel is Glorious, verse 4, and excellent. We have here that He's more excellent than the mountains of prey. Some suggest that a better reading here would be the everlasting mountains and fitting the context. God's glory is known. It's understood. It had been previously experienced by God's people, but they would experience it that night in remarkable and new ways. But the enemy's gathered. And if you look in verse 5, and you see how the enemy in this historic occasion are described, they're the stout-hearted. And if you think of that occasion, we won't turn back and read what preceded that culmination that we did read from 2 Kings, but it wasn't merely that the Assyrian army had gathered around and encamped around Jerusalem and were threatening them. You think of what they'd already accomplished. They'd overthrown the northern kingdom. The captivity of those ten tribes has begun. They've overthrown all the surrounding kingdoms. And the leader of their army, the spokesman for the king, Rabshakeh as he's named in our version, is probably not a name but a title of the officer that brought this charge. But probably having your... Bible, if you have anything of a heading with descriptions there, Rabshakeh's blasphemous speech. Because if you read that account, it's, it's staggering how bold they are in crying out against Israel's God. Now we might say that 
There were no more bold there to boast against Israel's God than the gods of the other nations, just in their ignorance. But I'm going to say more, Lord willing, in a few minutes about the limits even of the ignorance of the ungodly. There are those that suppress truth. There was history. There was knowledge of Israel's God. And for the Rabshakeh and his blasphemy to speak against God, I don't think we can acquit him of his sin and of his crime at all. But God had allowed circumstances to come to the point where from every earthly appearance, it looked like it was hopeless for Jerusalem. And when Hezekiah received the report of Rabshakeh's speech, and he goes and seeks the Lord, and he says, Lord, it's true what it said. They have sacked every other kingdom. They have overthrown every other idol. But that's the point. Those were just idols, and you're not. You're God. And the Lord gives here a deliverance that is remarkable. It is, some suggest, second only to the overthrow of Pharaoh at the Red Sea. As far as a miraculous almost unexpected deliverance by the immediate hand of God. It's one of those occasions where the Lord didn't allow His people even to fight in the battle. But sometimes He helped them along the way. We think about Moses. We often reference that when Aaron and Hur held up his hands and Joshua was leading the armies. And when he held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And when his hands were weary and fell, the Amalekites prevailed. Well, Israelites aren't even on the battlefield in this one. They've just sought the Lord in prayer through their king, and they sit back to watch God work. Here is an example of historic proportions with regard to their rescue and with regard to God's judgment upon their enemies. I've often thought that Perhaps one of the reasons that the Lord worked in such a remarkable way on that occasion was because of that blasphemous speech. That God wasn't certainly delivering Jerusalem for their righteousness, for their worthiness, but here was an assault upon Him. Think how often it is that the enemies of God's people, they assault God's people because that's the only way they can really try and get at God. The Lord works and gives that deliverance that we still find remarkable, both from a a spiritual and even a historic standpoint. God is able. God defended His name. One I was reading, though, interjected the thought I love some of these, two or three of these British evangelicals that I have their commentaries are kind of mid-20th century commentaries. And just the way some of those men can turn a phrase. Uh, my, one of my favorite commentaries on the Psalms is by Derek Kidner and just the economy of words at times. I wish I had jotted down how he he phrased it, but he referenced Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. You remember as Nebuchadnezzar threatened them with a fiery furnace, and their reply to him, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us out of your hand. 
Now here's Nebuchadnezzar. There aren't any opposing armies around. All the soldiers are on his team with these three Hebrew youths. Um, right. Our God's able to deliver us out of your hand. But if not, be it known unto the O king, we're not worship the image you set up. We're not going to bow down. It's a line we can't cross. God might deliver us. He might not. But we're going to be faithful to him. Our God delivered them. That was another occasion where it wasn't just these men and their lives and their experience or their livelihoods. It was God's name and God's glory. I love those stories in Daniel because they just show that when God's people have failed, they have miserably failed in rightly presenting their God to the world, that God's glory and God's name still wasn't in jeopardy. He didn't need Israel to show the Babylonians who he was. He would show them. I've said often recently some of our studies surrounding the Gospels and some of those accounts that for Pilate I would love to have been a little fly on the wall to hear the, the inflection in his voice when he said, what is truth? Well, I'd like to have heard the inflection in Nebuchadnezzar's voice when he said, didn't we throw three men in the fire? I see four. What was his mindset then? How bold was he then? Well, as Kidner pointed out, those men knew deliverance, but they also understood that God didn't always deliver his people from their enemies. You can go back just a few pages in the Psalter. And you see occasions where the psalmist has to confess, Lord, you don't go forth with our armies. Lord, we don't see our signs. Lord, you've given us to suffer defeat. You've let the enemies overcome us. Of course, those psalms deal with what God's people have to work through in those circumstances. Well, this is a psalm that recounts a time where God did deliver. Each crisis may not be of such a conclusion in the unfolding of history, the different experiences of God's people. God delivered Jerusalem from the Assyrian army and didn't send the southern kingdom into an Assyrian captivity as He did the northern tribes, but He did send them into a Babylonian captivity. He didn't slay 185,000 Babylonian soldiers in one night. No, He let them be taken. So every crisis the Lord's people or the church might face may not come to such a conclusion as this one. But history is working toward a final crisis. And that, I believe, is what the psalmist directs us to from verse 7 to the end of the psalm. It will be, I believe, another day in which Jerusalem is surrounded with armies. Not of Sennacherib with a a blasphemous Rabshakeh, but of the man of sin and a false prophet proclaiming his glories, as it were. Here, what previously is remembered, that which was local and 
already accomplished to that which is universal and that which is future. Thou, verse 7, even thou art to be feared. And who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry? Revelation 6, verse 17, closing out the chapter, most likely uses this psalm as its source when it talks about who can stand. The day of his wrath has come. Who will stand? The obvious answer is none can stand in that day. There is a day coming in which God will arise. And this is the one to be feared. Read verse 8, Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. And God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth. This isn't a small, even to speak of Sennacherib's invasion, is a small thing. But by comparison, that was a point in an unfolding history. What is coming in the future, yes, it's a, it's a point in an unfolding history. It's a final point. It's a culminating point. You think even of the language. When God arises to judgment. We come into, well, really, well, what's the phrase, stuff that's above our pay grade? God condescends to speak of Himself to us in Scripture language. Often we talk about anthropomorphisms, ways that God would describe Himself even in human terms. God's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. Well, we have hands. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all His perfections. But just even think of God arising, of God rousing Himself to attend to something. And here, when he rises from heaven, the earth, not just 185,000 of Sennacherib's army, the earth feared and was still. And there's a phrase, and our Lord uses such language in the Beatitudes as he unfolds his ministry and preaching of the kingdom. God rises to save all the meek of the earth. Who shall stand when He appeareth? We come then to some very familiar phrases from the psalm, verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. Some discussion as to the right way to translate the last part of verse 10. Uh, the word that's translated there, restrain, often has the idea of putting something on, uh, to gird it on. And some say they think that perhaps the first part of the verse is the wrath of man, and the second part of the verse is God putting on His own wrath. Others understand it, the wrath of men shall praise God, and, and then if there's any residue of that wrath of man, as it were, that God will, will bring it to naught, and and restrain that as our translators have understood it. But it's one of those things where that little nuance of meaning isn't necessary to fully flesh out. That opening phrase, the wrath of men shall praise him. 
you know, you have to be a believer in the doctrines of grace. You have to be a believer in the sovereignty of God to understand and embrace that. I'm reminded of a phrase I haven't quoted in the pulpit for a very long time now to my recollection, but the phrase is put forth, a Calvinist is a Christian who confesses in his theology before men what all Christians really believe when they're on their face before God in prayer. For us to understand and sometimes to work it through in in a time or a season of difficulty, that the wrath of men, that all the sinful stuff that is going on around us or maybe all the sinful stuff that is even aimed at us, it's not out of God's control. It's not something that God can't figure out how to deal with. He'll work it to His glory. He'll overrule sin for good. I thought of this psalm and comparing it somewhat with the second psalm. The wrath of men we read here will praise God. We read in the second psalm that he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. And that's at a very similar, perhaps the very same event that this psalm is referencing when the the kings of the earth rise up and and they take counsel together against the Lord and against His Christ. Confederated forces fighting against heaven. Well, what do we read in the close of this psalm? He'll cut off the spirit of princes. He's terrible unto the kings of the earth. As I said, what... We see in this psalm, the wrath of men will praise God. We could almost phrase it this way from Psalm 2, the wrath of men amuses God. Because all their boast, all their ostensible power, it's just temporary. It's just earthly. That in itself is at the sovereign control of God. that displayed Calvary. Sinful men slew Christ. Sinful men connived and worked and used their influence and their powers to crucify Him. But those men who by wicked and cruel hands, they did only what God had foreordained they would do. If you talk about using the wrath of men to praise Himself, God, we learned in Ephesians, will be, if we can speak this way, boasting throughout eternity of what He's accomplished in the salvation of His church. And He used the wrath of unwitting men to do, to work, that very thing. As men seek to finally gather an interesting study if you go from early in Genesis through the close of Revelation and you see the development of that, the theme of Babylon. A confederated humanity working in concert against the God of heaven. There's the spirit of Babylon. 
The scripture says a lot and we experience a lot of precious stuff with regard to unity. With regard to coming together to use some of our modern phrases. But it's a coming together in the gospel. It's a mutual fellowship of those who have recognized themselves as sinners and repented of their sins and come to be united to Christ and are thus united one to another. I got to text Derek tonight and trying to get that quote from Chris Anderson about Paul's arrival and glory and Stephen there. You just think of that. Of a gospel simple and powerful enough to take that man that was being so mercilessly stoned and murdered and the one that coordinated it and make them brothers forever. I say these men, these princes and kings that are gathered, the wrath will only work His will. It will only render greater praise to Him. The psalm here is calling them, let them, or verse 13, or 11 rather, vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Let all that be round about Him bring presents unto Him that ought to be feared. I wonder in that day, I believe Paul speaks in Romans 11 of a day in which Israel will be turned. As we've looked before, pray and utter that penitential psalm that we read in Isaiah 53. The one they had cast their hopes in. The Lord speaks to Israel. He had come in His own name and they had not received Him. Another would come in His own name. For Christ had come in the name of the Father. Another would come in His own name and Him they will receive. That prince that shall come, Daniel speaks of, that gets them to cry peace and safety. Suddenly they recognize there's no peace or safety designed for them by Him at all finally recognizing their Christ. There's some of those 11th hour workers in the vineyard to be sure. And that day that Paul anticipated and we anticipate as well. They without us shall not be made perfect. We will participate in that day whether we're alive and remain to the day of that coming and that final deliverance whether we have gone on before and are among those the Lord brings with Him when He comes. And that day in which He'll be seen and known for who He is. Many questions, all the debates will be over. For us, faith becomes sight. Psalm 76 is... Well, I think sometimes, at least in my own mind, it seems a little more sober because of the tune that our Psalter, or the old Scottish Psalter, we sing this one to. It was a pretty heavy tune, and it's really more a a psalm that needs a victorious tune. It's heavy and weighty for those that haven't bowed the knee. It's fearful for those upon whom He comes in judgment. When he cuts off, when he is terrible to the kings of the earth. But a 
mighty deliverance of His people. God has delivered His people throughout history at various seasons, even from awful dangers. There are some seasons in which He sovereignly allowed His people to succumb to dangers. But there's coming a final culmination of history in which all those rights all those wrongs rather will be righted every eye will see him no one will be ignorant or plead ignorance in that day the king of glory will appear let's bow our heads together heavenly father we can read this psalm and we can just have a little history lesson when we think about Sennacherib. And we can have a little theology lesson when we think about the second coming. And in some ways feel detached from both. Lord, circumstances in our nation and the world are in some ways not allowing us and our previously comfortable American churches and homes. Lord, you're not allowing us to have a, a sinful slumber, as it were, anymore. And so grant us gospel hearts to rejoice in what you've done in the past. With Shadrach and his companions, know that you're able to do such things for your people at any time. And yet there may even be seasons when you allow, such as Stephen, we saw this morning to be martyred instead of delivered. But your presence was known. Well, give us such faith as Stephen had. Give us such faith, even boldness, as those Hebrew children had. He said, even if he doesn't deliver us, we won't worship your false gods. And so, Lord, strengthen us. Grant us the help we need to live with understanding, to bear fruitful testimony in our day. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name.